New York. This is Democracy Now! This air quality event, which for a time yesterday gave us the worst air quality in New York City since the 1960s, presents real health risks. The fine particulate matter in the air can get into people's lungs, cause inflammation, and worsen conditions like asthma, chronic lung disease, or underlying heart conditions. Over 90 million people are under air quality alerts as hazardous smoke from wildfires in Canada blanket much of the eastern United States. In New York City, the sky turned orange Wednesday as the city's air became the most polluted in the world. We'll speak to David Wallace-Wells of the New York Times about the link between the climate emergency and the fires. His latest piece, As Smoke Darkens the Sky, the Future Becomes Clear. Then we look at why the world's deadliest wars go unreported. My name is Anjan Sundaram. I'm the author of Breakup, A Marriage in Wartime, about the deadly war in the Central African Republic, where the Wagner Group is mining diamonds and gold to finance their war in Ukraine. The war in the Central African Republic, like many of the deadliest wars in our world, passed mostly unreported. And I'll be talking about what we can do to cover these wars better. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Large swaths of the United States and Canada woke up to hazy skies and air quality alerts for a third straight day today, as thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to blanket areas as far west as Kansas and as far south as the Carolinas. New York City's skies turned an unworldly orange as the city recorded its worst-ever air quality reading on Wednesday. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called the situation an emergency crisis. It has an immediate impact on people's health, irritation to the eyes, the nose, uh, breathing, coughing, so, and even shortness of breath. So our message right now is going to be reiterated multiple times because it is simply stay indoors. Some schools in New Jersey and New York have closed their doors today, while hospital emergency rooms reported an increase in patients with respiratory issues. Flights were grounded at airports in the Northeast, as cities including Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., also experience unhealthy levels of smoke. The worst of the pollution is expected to move away from the Northeast by Friday, though conditions may remain hazardous through part of the weekend. Health experts are advising people who need to be outdoors to wear N95 masks, if possible, to block out the dangerous fine particulate matter from the smoke. Forecasters expect the smoke to move south and west today. Meanwhile, activists are calling on President Biden to declare a climate emergency. Scientists say to expect more events like this as wildfires have increased due to climate change-induced droughts and high temperatures. We'll have more on the wildfires and the climate crisis after headlines with New York Times writer David Wallace-Wells here in New York. In Sudan, a massive fire erupted Wednesday at a fuel storage depot inside a military base in the capital Khartoum as fighting raged between Sudan's army and its rival, the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces. The fire threatened to ignite a warehouse filled with weapons and ammunition and prompted fears among nearby residents who remained trapped in their homes. Witnesses reported houses in the area have been hit by stray artillery fire and bullets. Meanwhile, UNICEF says it's rescued nearly 300 children and 70 caregivers from a Khartoum orphanage that's been cut off 
off by the fighting. More than 70 children died from hunger and illness at the orphanage since mid-April. Khartoum residents say drinking water and other necessities remain in short supply. It's laborious and dangerous to fetch water from the Nile River. If you drill a well, even to a depth of 20 meters, you still can't get water. Now we can only pay for water. A small bottle of water might be free, but you have to pay to get more. A bucket of water costs 4,000 Sudanese pounds. Rescue operations continue in Ukraine, where at least eight deaths have been reported from flooding caused by Tuesday's breach of the Nova Kahovka Dam on the Dnipro River. The U.N. warns the breach could lead to the spread of waterborne diseases, and the Red Cross warns floodwaters have dislodged countless landmines, which will pose a threat to civilians for decades to come. The breach is draining a reservoir that supplies water to more than a million acres of Ukraine's most fertile and productive farmland. Earlier today, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky toured flood-ravaged areas, accusing Russian forces of shelling rescue workers trying to reach survivors. Zelensky also denied his government took part in sabotaging the Nord Stream gas pipelines after The Washington Post reported a small team of divers under the command of Ukraine's military staged the undersea bombing of the pipelines last September. Meanwhile, officials in Moscow and Kyiv blame each other for damaging a pipeline used to transport ammonia fertilizer from Russia to Ukraine. The damage could prevent the renewal of the Black Sea grain export deal. This all comes as Ukraine's military claimed its forces have made incremental advances along the Eastern Front. On Wednesday, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba rejected calls to negotiate an immediate ceasefire with Russia. Every peace plan should not lead to freezing of the conflict, because those who think that the, the urgent task is to freeze the conflict and then to see how, it, how, how, uh, how to fix it afterwards, they are wrong. They don't understand the logic of this war. Germany is preparing to host NATO's largest ever aerial war games in a show of force against Russia. The chief of staff of Germany's Air Force, Ingo Gerhardt, said next week's military exercises will include personnel from Sweden, which is seeking NATO membership, as well as members of Japan's military. There are 25 nations and 250 planes with almost 10,000 participants involved, which will mean roughly 2,000 flights over these 10 days. We are a defensive alliance, and so this exercise is defensive. We will not be flying any scenarios of an offensive nature. Federal prosecutors have notified Donald Trump's legal team. He's the target of a criminal investigation and may face charges, including obstruction of justice. It's the clearest signal yet. The former president is on the cusp of being indicted by the Office of Special Counsel Jack Smith, which has been investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, his role in the January 6th insurrection, as well as his mishandling of classified documents. In Florida, a grand jury has been hearing testimony in the classified materials case. More than 300 classified documents were found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. On Wednesday, Tyler Budowich, former Trump aide and founder of Super PAC MAGA Inc., appeared before the grand jury. Former Vice President Mike Pence officially announced his run for the presidency on Wednesday, on his 64th birthday. Speaking at a rally near Des Moines, Iowa, Pence portrayed his former boss as being unfit to serve as he recounted Trump's actions January 6, 2021. President Trump's words were reckless. They endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. But the American people deserve to know 
that on that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. Mike Pence also called for abortion to be banned nationwide. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum also announced Wednesday he's running to be the Republican presidential nominee. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announced his candidacy on Tuesday. Meanwhile, another 2024 hopeful, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, took credit Wednesday for flying South American asylum seekers from the U.S. border to Sacramento, California. Florida arranged the flights, but DeSantis blamed California for policies he says incentivize immigration. California's called the flight state-sanctioned kidnapping and is considering criminal charges. CNN chief executive Chris Licht has been ousted after weeks of mounting criticism and a plunge in ratings. Licht had been in the position for just over a year, was part of a drive to steer the network towards a more, quote, centrist position towards the right. Last month, CNN came under fire for hosting a chaotic live town hall event with Donald Trump in which he continued to spew lies before an audience of his supporters. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich wrote, quote, the lesson is that Licht's goal of shifting CNN from anti-Trump confrontation toward an imagined political center was doomed from the start because there's no longer a political center, Reich said. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has contradicted law enforcement officials in Georgia over their claims that activist groups opposed to the Cop City Police Training Center have been classified as domestic terrorists. On Wednesday, the agency said in a statement it does not classify or designate any groups as domestic violent extremists. The statement came after dozens of Cop City protesters would defend the Atlanta forest were served arrest warrants claiming they were members of a group that's, quote, classified by the United States. Department of Homeland Security as domestic violent extremists, unquote. And last week, three members of another group, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which had been raising money to bail out protesters, were arrested on similar warrants. On Wednesday, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, asked the Department of Homeland Security for clarification, writing, quote, peaceful protest is a quintessentially American activity and a fundamental constitutional right, Warnock said. In Mississippi, progressive groups have filed a lawsuit seeking to block a new state law that forces protesters to get approval from law enforcement officials before holding public actions near or at government buildings in the city of Jackson. The law requires prior permission from Mississippi's public safety commissioner or the state capitol police chief for demonstrations at the state Supreme Court, the governor's mansion, the state capitol grounds and other government sites. The suit was filed last week by the Jackson Undivided Coalition, Mississippi Poor People's Campaign, Black Voters Matter, and others. The groups say this is an attempt of the white Republican supermajority to strip predominantly black communities in and around the capital Jackson of local autonomy and the right to free assembly. The new law is set to take effect July 1st. President Biden's vetoed legislation that would have revoked his plan to give 40 million U.S. student loan borrowers up to $20,000 each in relief. Biden's veto came after Senators Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin and John Tester joined all 49 Senate Republicans voting in favor of repealing student loan relief. 
And the European Union's top court has ruled against judicial reform signed by Poland's far-right president, Andrzej Duda, saying the 2019 reforms violate EU laws regarding the independence of judges. The ruling by the European Court of Justice came a day after an estimated half million people marched in the capital Warsaw and other Polish cities to protest against Duda and his ruling Law and Justice Party. Protesters decried the party's attacks on reproductive rights, women's rights, LGBTQ people, independent journalists and civil society groups. Donald Tusk, former Polish prime minister, European Council president and opposition leader, told a crowd in Warsaw he and other government critics are threatened by a new law that gives the government the power to investigate Russian influence in Poland and to ban people from public office without judicial oversight. If you don't want citizens' rights and freedoms to be violated every day, you are against that. Then you are against the Law and Justice Party. If you don't want Polish women to be humiliated, for Polish women to be deprived of fundamental rights, even the rights of life and security, if you are against those who humiliate Polish women, then you are against the Law and Justice Party. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we speak to New York Times science writer and columnist David Wallace-Wells about the link between the climate emergency and wildfires in Canada that are blanketing much of the eastern United States. His column, As Smoke Darkens the Sky, the Future Becomes Clear. Stay with us. by Monster Rally. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. It's good to see you here in the studio. If we were outside here in New York, it would be a bit more difficult. Over 90 million people across large swaths of the United States and Canada woke up to hazy skies and air quality alerts for a third straight day today, as thick smoke from Canadian wildfires continues to blanket areas as far west as Kansas, as far south as the Carolinas. Here in New York City, the sky turned orange Wednesday, as the city's air became the most polluted in the world. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called the situation an emergency crisis. 
It has an immediate impact on people's health, irritation to the eyes, the nose, uh, breathing, coughing, so and even shortness of breath. So our message right now is going to be reiterated multiple times because it is simply stay indoors. As people were urged to stay inside, delivery workers took to social media to share pictures of themselves still working in the extreme conditions. A number of schools have closed due to the smoke, along with public parks. Hospital emergency rooms reported an increase in patients with respiratory issues. Flights were grounded at airports in the Northeast. Health experts are advising people who need to be outdoors to wear an N95 mask, if possible, to block out the dangerous fine particulate matter from the smoke. Forecasters expect the smoke to move south and west later today. Climate scientists say this comes amidst a steep increase in wildfires during the 21st century due to hotter temperatures and drier conditions created by climate change. Meanwhile, to the north in Canada, many of the fires generating the smoke continue to burn out of control. This is Canadian Federal Minister of Emergency Preparedness Bill Blair speaking Wednesday. As of today, there are 2,293 wildfires that have occurred in Canada. Approximately 3.8 million hectares have been burned. And across the country, as of today, there are 414 wildfires burning, 239 of which are determined to be out of control. Also, as of today, an estimated 20,183 people remain evacuated from their homes and communities. Also on Wednesday, Democracy Now! spoke to Brandy Marin, a Cree Iroquois French journalist based in Alberta, Canada, after she returned from reporting on the wildfires raging in the remote indigenous community of Fort Chippewa. I was in um, the northern part of Alberta in a remote indigenous community of Fort Chippewa that has been evacuated. It's only accessible by boat or plane, and the fire is encroaching on their community. It's about seven kilometers away. It's nearly 25,000 hectares. It's massive. But what is significant about this community is that it is the epicenter of the effects of climate change because it's downstream from one of the largest oil production uh, developments in the world, um, Alberta's oil sands. And so they've been dealing with, you know, pollution and the impacts to their lands and to their health for many years now. And they just got through um, these uh, oil companies dumping um, toxic tailings into their river just a couple of months ago. Their leaders were, um, you know, testifying in Ottawa. It's just, it's this community has experienced kind of trauma after trauma, and now they're literally getting burned out. It's, it's insane. We are in an emergency here in Canada. We are experiencing unprecedented wildfires. The federal government is predicting that it's only going to get more severe as we get further into the summer season. This is going to be our norm. We are starting to get into the thick of the effects of climate change, and it affects us all as a whole. The smoke from Alberta to Ontario to Quebec, you know, are the remnants of this crisis that nature is in, you know, to where whole communities 
who are the least contributors. I mean, our native communities are the least contributors to this and we are the most impacted to where they are, you know, fleeing their homes and their livelihoods. That's Cree Iroquois French journalist Brandy Marin, who just returned from reporting on the wildfires raging in the remote indigenous community of Fort Chippewa in Canada. For more, we return to New York, where the smoky skies around our office here in Manhattan were documented by our producer, Messiah Rhodes. Um, yes, New York City now the epicenter, um, the worst air quality in the world, reported yesterday. Um, I wanted to read first a quote of Bill McKibben, who says, Today is our chance to understand what it really feels like every day on a fossil-fueled planet for the billions of people unlucky enough to really bear the brunt. He said, my eyes are stinging a bit from the smoke, but I've never seen more clearly. David Wallace-Wells echoes the sentiment. He is a New York Times opinion writer. His latest columns headlined, There's No Escape from Wildfire Smoke. And as smoke darkens the sky, the future becomes clear. David is author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, David. It's great to have you with us. As smoke darkens the sky, the future becomes clear. Talk about what we're experiencing here in New York and through uh, on many parts of the United States, how it connects to Canada and what's happening there and how all of this relates to the climate catastrophe. Well, in New York and all across the eastern seaboard, we are breathing in toxic air. Everyone who's outside can see it, can feel it in their nose, in their eyes, can taste it in their mouths. This is not just um, unhealthy air. It's at levels that have been judged to be hazardous. And while it's true that the U.S., uh, well, New York is um, these days registering the unhealthiest air quality in the world, it's not just that we are breathing the equivalent air um, that people in Delhi breathe every year, where in that city, the average resident loses nine plus years of life expectancy thanks to air pollution. The pollution in New York City yesterday was actually considerably worse than that. Um, we're going to be, you know, that that um, that smog is going to diminish over the next few days. We're going to return to something that feels probably unhealthy, but somewhat like normal. People in Delhi and all across the developing world don't have that luxury. Um, while they don't reach peaks like this, they also don't get to troughs like we're going to get to. But it means that everybody across one of the most densely populated places um, in the world is suffering to some degree from the consequence of wildfires, which are driven and powered by climate change. And what's really striking to me about this experience is, as a native New Yorker who's lived his whole life in New York, you know, I used to look at um, the fires in California with horror, but also with a little bit of relief to say that this was a climate disaster that was affecting people, ruining many lives, um, harming millions of people's health. But it was distant, and it felt quarantinable to me. I knew enough people in California um, to know that they had moved on from being scared directly of fire to being scared of smoke, but I didn't really reckon with until this year just how unquarantinable or how uncontainable that smoke threat is. In America, 60% of the smoke impact of wildfires is felt outside the state in which those fires are burning. And even if we started to wrap our minds around that over the last couple of years, 
I think this smoke event, which is coming from another country, is another level of distance entirely. And it's a reminder that this is not a crisis that is escapable. No matter where you live, no matter how modern the, the metropolis that you live in is, no matter how um, distant you may feel from the impacts of um, the degradation of the natural world, no matter where you are, you will face some of these impacts sometime soon. And in a case like today in New York, it will feel quite claustrophobically apocalyptic. Um, it's not going to be forever. We're not going to be breathing this air six months from now, presumably. But who knows really what the course of these fires and the smoke will be, given that so much of Canada is today burning genuinely out of control. When you look at the map of the fires of the country, it's a wash in red marks of out of control fires. And to this point, the country has experienced something like 14 times as much land burning as they have experienced on average over the last decade. And that's a remarkable, unbelievable unprecedented amount of burning, especially when you consider that the baseline comparison of the last decade was itself enormously elevated because we are living in a degraded climate with more and more fires. And so when we say Canada has burned 14 times more land than over the last decade, that decade would have been an unthinkable amount of burning a decade or two before that. So we're heading into a future defined by many more of these fires and much more of this smoke. And the more that we are learning about the health impacts of that smoke, the scarier and more uncomfortable um, it truly is. It's, you know, these, it's, we think about respiratory ailments, um, but it affects cancers of all time, of all kinds. Um, it affects developmental uh, issues. It changes um, rates of uh, schizophrenia, ADHD, autism, um, premature birth, low birth weight, and the effect on um, economic productivity and cognition is so profound that according to a U.S. Census Bureau working paper published last year, um, exposure to air pollution alone can account for something like a quarter of the black, white, and Hispanic white wage gap in the United States. Um, thankfully, over the last few decades, because of the Clean Air Act, we've undone a lot of the damage um, of air pollution, but wildfire is reversing that trend. And in 2020, more than half of all air pollution in the western U.S. came from wildfire, which means that there was more pollution that people in the western U.S. were breathing and suffering from in that year than from all other human and industrial activity combined. And we're going in the right direction on human and industrial activity. We're going to be drawing down that pollution. But wildfire is moving in the other direction and is much less controllable. And as a result, I think, much scarier. So, David, we're going to get more into the causes of these wildfires, why they've become more widespread as well as more intense. But I just want to point out to our television viewers that you are in New York, uh, in New York City, but the background that you're sitting in front of is just stock photo. That is not what New York City looks like at the moment. So in your, uh, you wrote a piece for the London Review of Books in uh, 2021, where you cited the work of Stephen Pine, uh, who calls this our present era, the era of the Pyrocene. So could you explain what that means and put it into the context of what we're witnessing now with these wildfires in Canada and their widespread effects? Well, Stephen Pine is a, um, a fire historian, um, especially eloquent and poetic one. Um, and as a fire historian, he has a quite long historical view. And that includes periods of time in which there was considerably more burning in the world's forests, and especially in places like the Western U.S. than we're seeing today. But of course, we had many fewer human settlements there. So, you know, it may be the case that in California every year, 5,000 years ago, there were millions of acres burning, but there weren't 40 million people living in that state breathing that toxic smoke. And there weren't 330 million people in the United States breathing it in either. 
And his perspective is that in part because of the burning of fossil fuels and the relentless addition of carbon emissions to the atmosphere that we've undertaken, especially in the West, but increasingly all around the world over the last couple of decades, we are moving from a familiar um, but quite forbidding um, fire regime, global fire regime that we've lived under over the last couple of centuries into one in which um, we're probably still going to be burning some more fossil fuels going forward, um, doing more damage to the planet's climate and producing environmental conditions that make not just fires, but large, out of control fires much, much more common. And I think this is something that um, most lay people don't truly appreciate. It's not just that we're getting more fires, and it's not even that they're getting larger. They're also getting much more intense, which means that they're cooking much, um, much of the landscape in different ways, sending, them, sending that um, smoke, sending that ash up into the atmosphere in a much more powerful way, which allows it to get higher up and therefore travel farther. We're seeing, um, that's one reason why we're seeing the smoke events of the last few years travel so much farther. The Australian bushfires of 2019, 2020 um, traveled not just to New Zealand, where they created conditions like we've seen in New York over the last couple of days, but all the way across the Pacific and indeed onto the other side of South America. Um, we've seen American wildfire smoke travel to Europe all the way from the West Coast. Um, and the more, as I was saying a few minutes ago, the more that we understand the catastrophic health impacts of that, um, the more we understand this as a global catastrophe um, produced ultimately by our addiction to burning one material, fossil fuels, but which is um, getting out of our control in burning the forests um, and bush and grass of the world and forcing us to breathe in air that is threaded and laced um, with all the toxins that produces. And David, I want to uh, go to the point that you made about uh, uh, pollution, uh, intense air pollution elsewhere uh, in uh, developing countries in particular. Now, of course, uh, you mentioned Delhi. Uh, 37 of the 40 most polluted cities in the world are in South Asia. So if you could talk first about the causes of this pollution in South Asia, it's not uh, forest fires there. Uh, and also the fact that just 10 years ago, we saw images repeatedly uh, from China, from Chinese cities, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, etc., that were the most polluted at the time. What were the steps that China took to reduce that pollution? And are those uh, replicable uh, in these uh, cities uh, across South Asia? Well, to start with a really big headline figure, um, it's estimated that about 10 million people are dying prematurely every year around the globe because of the effects of air pollution. Um, and that is an almost unfathomably large number. It's death at the scale of the Holocaust every single year. And while it's morally different in many profound ways, I think we are really un unfortunately distracted from the scale of the suffering that that air pollution produces. The causes are different in different parts of the world, and the impacts are different, such that in a place like the U.S., which has relatively clean air by global standards, still we're seeing something like 350,000 Americans dying every year, in part as a result of air pollution. And that's death equivalent to the amount of Americans who passed away from COVID in the first year of the pandemic. Um, but the impacts are much darker and more striking um, elsewhere in the world, as you mentioned, most dramatically across South Asia and indeed in India. And the causes there are multiple, um, but the most significant one is, the two most significant ones are the burning of fossil fuels, um, particularly coal. For every thousand people that get electricity from the burning of coal, 
every year one dies, um, and agricultural burning, um, which we've stopped doing much of in places like the U.S. and Europe, but which is still a relatively common practice um, in other parts of the world. It's one of the reasons, one of the ways that the Amazon has been deforested in Brazil as well. Um, Across India, on average, um, lifespans have been reduced by this air pollution by six years, which means this is a country of more than a billion people. And on average, every single one of them will have six less lives of life thanks to the effect of air pollution. And in um, parts of, of India, as I mentioned earlier, including Delhi, the number gets up to nine and even 10 years of life lost. Um, in that city, you have something like half of all children suffering some amount of um, lung impairment thanks to the, um, thanks to the pollution. Um, as you mentioned, there are encouraging signs at the global level, level here. You know, 10 million is a huge, huge number. Um, presumably, it's actually smaller than it's been in the past. Our estimates are growing, but they're probably just because our measures have been get, getting better. We are probably at or past the peak of global air pollution because we are retiring so much coal capacity. We are slowly but surely moving away from fossil fuel in certain sectors, transportation and electricity. And so as a result, around the world, probably fewer people are dying of air pollution than did a few decades ago. But where they are dying, the story, you know, in certain parts of the world, the story is very different. And in in South Asia, things have been getting dramatically worse over the last couple of decades. Um, It is an encouraging story to see what happened in China, but on some level, it's not that encouraging. The Chinese government saw the public health impacts of um, what they called in um, in the middle of the last decade, the air apocalypse, um, and saw that it was having real political um, consequences, that people were really frustrated that the government was not able to protect the health health and lives of of, um, its citizens. And as a result, um, they did basically two things. They started in an ambitious way to ramp up their green energy investment, which is still, I mean, they're doing much more spending on building out wind and solar than the rest of the world almost combined. Um, But they also moved their dirty fossil fuel plants, their coal plants, away from the cities. And that is useful. It means that the people, you know, there are fewer people living right next to the coal plants. But ultimately, it's a sort of a half measure, which has a significant impact on on public health, um, but doesn't really help us all that much in the fight against the climate crisis that um, we're trying to, you know, do at the same time. India is moving to some degree in that direction. They've um, suggested over the last month or two, in fact, that they're much more committed to um, expansion of green energy and much less committed to a coal-powered future than seemed possible just a year or two ago. Um, but nevertheless, when you have global mortality figures like 10 million a year, um, you know, those deaths add up very quickly. And we should, I think, be focusing on them much more than we are at a global policy level. And indeed, um, whenever we think about the world in moral terms, which we should do more and more. And speaking about thinking about the world in moral terms, let's talk about the world here at home, um, the racial disparities when it comes to the effects of air pollution, David Wallace-Wells. Well, you know, in certain ways, air pollution is a complicated story to tell on those lines because you don't always know where the smoke is going to be. And in fact, in places where there has been um, a lot of smoke from wildfire in particular, um, it's often the wealthiest communities in the world who are suffering. You see, you know, fires in, in Malibu, for instance, um, cleaning out you know, multi-million dollar homes fairly regularly. And around the Bay Area, um, there's been research done showing that, you know, the the richer neighborhoods um, with newer homes aren't actually better protected, um, you know, uh, with the infrastructure of the house against the penetration of smoke than some poorer neighborhoods, which is is a bit counterintuitive. 
and it has to do in part with the fact that we haven't really reckoned with um, the sort of ventilation crisis um, posed by both this and and the pandemic. And many new homes have things like, you know, even fancy homes have things like, um, uh, you know, gas exhaust vents that can let smoke into the home. Um, but when it comes to more traditional fossil fuel pollution produced by, you know, power plants um, and highways, um, of course, it is the marginalized communities who suffer most. That is where those um, things have been located by people who care less about the lives of people living next to them. And the effects there are really quite startling. Um, one study I think about a lot um, measured just the, the impact of um, installing easy pass uh you know, toll plazas on a highway. And for those who don't know, this is a, you know, an automatic mechanism that allows you to drive through rather than stopping and paying a, um, somebody at the toll booth, which meant that cars don't have to idle and slow down in that particular area of road. They can just pass through and the result is considerably less pollution. And the simple fact of building out those toll plazas reduced the local impact of, um, uh, on premature birth and low birth weight by something like 10 or 15%. Um, there are other impacts that have shown that um, other studies showing that um, putting a single air purifier in the classroom um, can help cognitive performance and test achievement, um, which is not necessarily the best measure of student success, but in any event, one that we have, it can benefit those students as much as cutting the class size in half, um, which is the kind of thing that you know should be heralded all around the country and indeed all around the world, given how much um, so many people are focused on um, the academic success of our of our children. Um, you know, we see effects on on cancers of all kinds, on respiratory disease, um, on coronary disease, on, you know, every measure of public health and well-being um, that you can imagine. And of course, because we live in a world in which the sorts of people who are forced to live next to coal-fired power plants or next to 12-lane highways are the people who have the least advantages in our society. Those are the people who are suffering most dramatically. And, David- and at the global level, that seems to be true as well. Canada is the biggest supplier of oil to the United States. Now it's wildfires are the biggest supplier of smoke to the United States. If you can talk about that connection also, let's not forget that with this debt ceiling bill that was considered a success that saved the country's economy, what was tagged onto it was Joe Manchin's insistence on that Mountain Valley pipeline, uh, greenhouse gas emissions expected from the frack gas inside, equivalent to something like 26 to 37 coal-powered power plants. Coal, of course, he's gotten millions from and the largest recipient of um, uh, fossil fuel money in Congress. If you could start off by talking more specifically about these, why these 400, more than 400 blazes are burning across Canada's 10 provinces and territories. They're forcing tens of thousands to evacuate, something we, we probably wouldn't even know in the United States if it weren't for the smoke that's blanketing our country. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the answer here, the explanation here is quite clear. The climate is warming because we are burning fossil fuels. The um, lion's share of historical responsibility there lies with the richest countries of the world. In fact, Canada, um, the U.S. as a country is responsible for most of the damage done to um, the world's environment, um, much larger than the share contributed by China. And since carbon hangs in the air for centuries, China will never catch up to the um, to the impact that the U.S. has had. On a per capita historical basis, uh, Canada is actually a worse contributor than the U.S. because they've um, they're a more fossil fuel dependent country even than the U.S. is. Um, 
the, the total impact is smaller because they have many fewer people. But on a per capita basis, they're they're a much worse contributor. And I think one of the perverse lessons of the wild of these wildfires is that we've gotten so used to sort of locating the grim impacts of climate change in the global south, um, where the people who have done least to create the problem um, suffer those impacts, that when they come to us, um, to our front step, to our doorstep, we're horrified. But of course, we've been dumping, effectively dumping that pollution on the global south now for many decades. And I think just talking for a minute about the carbon inequalities involved here is really, really startling and striking. The average resident of Mali in in Africa uses only as much carbon every year as the average British tea kettle. The average American refrigerator has a larger carbon footprint than the average resident of Nigeria, which is not even a poor African country by African standards. It's a middle-income African country. Um, and historically, the entire continent of Africa has contributed something like at most 3%, according to some tabulations, as little as 1% of um, the disruption to the climate that has been caused by primarily by the U.S. and Europe over the last couple of centuries. And that is a lasting monument. I don't think that many people appreciate just how dramatic a contribution and a disruption, a degradation that project has really been. We have now added more carbon to the atmosphere by weight than the sum total of everything that has ever been built on this planet by humans. There is more carbon in the atmosphere today than the sum total of all living matter on life today on Earth today. So we have done more damage to the world's atmosphere through the burning of fossil fuels than everything we have ever done on this planet. And it will last for centuries at least and probably millennia, which means that we are going to be reaping the consequences of this damage for many, many generations to come. The choices we are making today help us, will determine whether we navigate that future at a relatively lower level of warming or a relatively higher one, um, but it's quite perverse and disheartening to see leaders in countries like the U.S. and Canada and Europe as well um, lecture the nations of the developing world, try to stop financing even for their um, or, or not aid financing for their renewable energy development, while we at home continue to approve fossil fuel programs, which, while relatively small in the global scheme of things, just add to our gargantuan um, and sort of unforgivable uh, climate debt. Um, there was a, a study published a few days ago um, in uh, one of the Nature journals tabulating the ultimate responsibility of the countries of the global north towards the global south for climate damages already incurred, and the total ran, um, you know, into the into the tens of trillions of dollars. Um, I ran a calculation myself in a piece I wrote a couple of years ago about climate reparations and climate justice, in which I calculated that using the math that. The, the cost of reparation should be what it would actually take to take the carbon out of the atmosphere, that the U.S. alone might owe as much, as big a moral debt as $50 trillion. Um, and the global north as a whole owed a debt of something like $250 trillion. So we are doing incredible damage to um, the poor countries of the world through all of our reckless development and spending on fossil fuels. And, you know, we basically live protected from it by our wealth, um, but when we are reminded of just how damaged the planet has become, as we have been today and yesterday and the day before in New York, we are horrified. And 
I think, you know, as Bill McKibben said at the top of the segment, um, or as you quoted him saying at the top of the segment, it's a really useful reminder um, when we are suffering in this way to remember that many people elsewhere in the world without nearly the advantages that we have deal with something like this, um, something like these impacts almost every day of their lives and, in fact, have their lives shaped quite profoundly by the climate in ways that someone like me who lives on the 15th floor of a concrete high-rise in lower Manhattan um, doesn't appreciate, even as I write about it every day. It's almost hard for me to wrap my head around that. And the wildfire smoke and the, the eerie, apocalyptic glow um, swaddling New York over the last couple of days, making everyone I know cough, is a reminder of just how much more people elsewhere in the world are suffering as the result of our um, our irresponsible behavior. David Wallace-Wells, we want to thank you so much for being with us, New York Times opinion writer. We'll link to your latest column as smoke darkens the sky, the future becomes clear. David Wallace-Wells is also the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Next up, we look at why the world's deadliest wars go unreported with the award-winning journalist and author Anjan Sundaram. Stay with us. by Abdulaziz. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to look at why some of the world's deadliest wars go unreported. That's the headline of a recent piece by the acclaimed Indian war correspondent Anjan Sundaram. He writes, quote, "...despite the world's technological advances, conflicts like the one in the Central African Republic are still shrouded in darkness, and we often don't know the perpetrators, who is attacked or why." The neglect of such war zones is the consequence of an international news system still structured by colonial relationships. Foreign correspondents fly out from global capitals such as Washington, D.C. and London, more or less to similar places at similar times to tell us more or less the same stories. That's Anjan Sundaram, reporting in foreign policy, joining us now from Mexico City. He recently published his third memoir about life as a war correspondent correspondent titled Breakup, A Marriage in Wartime. His recent opinion piece, published on the front page of The New York Times about the Rwandan president, Paul Kagame, who he calls the West's most beloved dictator, is headlined Reducing Rwanda to Tyranny. Anjan, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, if you can lay out that piece that you just wrote, why the world's deadliest wars go unreported. Why? Thank, thank you, Amy and Nermeen, for having me. Uh, indeed, I, 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 can, I can illustrate 
you know, that uh, lack of reporting to a story in the Central African Republic. I was traveling in the west of the country with a Polish abbot, a priest, and we drove through a rebel rebel zone where the government had destroyed radio antennae. So we couldn't get news from the region. And as we drove in the abbot's white pickup, uh, we stopped at village after village and in each village deserted because they had, you know, uh, uh, abandoned their homes thinking that maybe we were the government come to ambush them or attack them. Uh, the abbot honked and someone would run out of the forest or run out of some hiding spot and thrust a piece of paper through our window. And on that piece of paper that fell into my lap, I would find a list of names of people who were who had been attacked, who were hungry, who were sick, who needed medicine. And uh, we would take these pages back to the to the capital, to the main city of the region as a form of war correspondence. And, you know, it's striking that in this age of, you know, as you mentioned in my piece, technological advancement of, you know, of uh, us being inundated with information, that this is how uh, news from war zones is still collected by hand, by the brave action of, you know, one priest, one person. Um, and I think that's that's very striking because it tells us that though we imagine that we cover the world well, the international news covers the world well, there are these enormous blind spots in places like the Central African Republic or the Democratic Republic of Congo, where nearly 6 million people have died since, been killed in the war since 1996. And these enormous wars, some of the greatest, you know, in our, the, the biggest in our world today, and some of the greatest since World War II, are still relatively, you know, still pass relatively unreported in the international news. Let's talk about the Central African Republic, because that's the subject of your book, uh, Breakup, which is just out, came out a couple of months ago. Uh, you said you spoke to, to many people in the Central African Republic uh, while you were reporting. And you said that the first thing people asked you was not for food or medicine, but if people knew outside what was happening in the Central African Republic. So if you could uh, talk about that, what people said to you and why it's so important that their stories get out. Absolutely. And I think uh, another striking quote was from my reporting partner, Thierry Mesongo, a journalist, in the, a Central African journalist. We were sitting down once and we, we were looking up at the moon and he said to me, I think people know more about the moon than they know about this, what's happening in my country. And uh, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, the war in the Central African Republic was initiated in 2013 by a group of, you know, uh, mostly Muslim rebels from the Northwest. And people have forgotten the history of the Central African Republic. But before it was a French colony through the 1900s, uh, there were powerful Muslim sultanates who ruled over that territory and the French defeated them. The French defeated a very powerful sultanate called the Dar al-Kuti, which means the door to the forest, and a, a, a sultan named Rabi al-Zubair. And when the, after the French took over, uh, people forgot about those Muslim kingdoms, but the Muslim populations of that region have not forgotten. And in 2013, they made a bid for power and to reclaim the glory that they had lost to the French. And uh, though, you know, they took over the country briefly, they were defeated again. And unfortunately, that defeat led to the ethnic cleansing of Muslims in the Central African Republic. The, popu the Muslim population of the country was reduced from roughly 15% of the country to about 9% 
by some accounts. So an enormous, enormous, you know, hundreds of thousands of people of Muslims cleansed from the country. And the number of dead in that war has still not been properly counted. Um, but what it tells us, what the Central African Republic tells us, is that many, many countries are looking back to their pasts before the West ruled over them and looking back to re- and looking to reclaim their identities and past glory. Uh, and, and, and though the, 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 you know, this rebel group, they took power only briefly, they did succeed in pushing out the French. And this created a void in the Central African Republic that has been filled by Russia. So as I mentioned early on in the segment, the, uh, Russia's notorious Wagner group is now active in the Central African Republic. A uh, U.S. diplomatic cable leaked earlier this year, uh, pointed out that you know, the Wagner group is mining millions, hundreds of millions possibly uh, of dollars worth of diamonds and gold uh, that it is using to recruit and buy equipment to finance its war in Ukraine. And so, uh, you know, it tells us that countries like the Central African Republic are so desperate to turn away from the West and turn away from Western colonial uh, crimes for which the West has you know, rarely apologized, that it is willing to ally with Russia, China, and even at the cost of furthering the war in Ukraine. Can you talk about the fact, you know, what you think needs to happen, how it is that these uh, wars can uh, receive the, the coverage that they uh, more than warrant? You've called for a uh, multipolar news world. Uh, how is it that countries in the global south itself, uh, newsrooms, can report on uh, conflicts in the global south without going through London or New York? Uh, sure. So I, I did my PhD research on this topic on post-colonial news. And one of the things that I elaborated was the colonial structure of international news. We still have correspondents flying out from global capitals, Western capitals mostly, like New York and London, to report on the peripheries of the world and bring us back information, um, you know, and then winning the prizes and the recognition in the West often using work and reporting that local reporters have worked for years on in in the peripheries. And so there's still much colonialism in the international news structure. But I think, you know, instead of continually blaming the West and criticizing the West for not caring enough about places like the Central African Republic and the Congo, which to some degree is understandable, these places are so far away uh, from the West, why put all the burden on Western media? I, I want to ask why wealthier, you know, uh, global South nations such as Nigeria and Kenya and India don't do more to report on places like the Central African Republic and the Congo and even conflicts nearby them. Uh, uh, You have, uh, if you you open the newspapers, uh, you know, the international pages of newspapers in many of these global South countries, you'll find most of the international news is sourced from the BBC and Reuters. And why is that? You know, Nigeria and India are now middle-income countries. They're, they're, they're going, they're, they're, their wealth is rising uh, very quickly. They have vibrant media sectors. Why don't they care more? Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm from India, so why don't we care more about uh, our neighboring countries? Why do we rely on The Guardian or the BBC to bring us news about countries that are a couple of hundred kilometers away from our border. And that's the question I really want to ask. I want to put the onus back on the global south and ask, you know, as as we 
uh, rise to levels of greater economic prosperity, there comes a responsibility also to report on the world, to cast and, and share our perspective, the Global South's perspective, on many of these wars, and to stop you know, criticizing Western media and Western nations for not caring enough. Anjan Sundaram, can you talk about your decision to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and also uh, in explaining what's happening there, how that links to the piece that you wrote um, about uh, about the brutal dictator uh, Paul Kagame, your headline, he's a brutal dictator, one of the West's best friends? Absolutely. So I, when I showed up in the Congo, this was about 15 years ago, I was studying mathematics at Yale, Yale, Yale University. I had a job at Goldman Sachs to work as a mathematician there. And uh, I opened the newspaper one day at lunchtime, and I turned to the middle of the, middle of the newspaper, bottom of the page, there was a little story about how 4 million people back then had been killed in the Congo War. And it struck me how that little story uh, wasn't on the front page, 4 million people. That's a huge number. And uh, from there, I began to you know, ex ex research and understand more about the war in the Democratic, Democratic Republic of Congo. And when, when I was paying my final bill at Yale, the cashier happened to be from Congo. And I ended up staying with her in-laws in Kinshasa, the capital of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And from there, from this inside perspective, uh, living with a local family instead of living in a hotel, I began to report on the country. I, I bought a one-way ticket to Kinshasa, lived with that family, and began to report on the country. And it was, a, for me, a remarkable education in journalism, because every day the stories that I published for the Associated Press, for whom I became a stringer, and this whole experience I recount in my first book, my first memoir, Stringer, A Reporter's Journey in the Congo. Every day the news that I published you know, was then criticized by my neighbors on the street. Uh, we, I would go and drink drink beer with them or buy, you know, cell phone credit uh, in the evenings. And they would, you know, scold me and tell me how my reporting was helping or hurting uh, th their country and holding me accountable it was at a street level, which is a rare experience as, a, as an international reporter. Usually we find ourselves living in, you know, nice hotels, dining with local politicians and, you know, the elite of the country. And here I was being held accountable by, you know, very ordinary, very middle class, lower middle class people who are living almost in uh, you know, conditions akin to a slum. And that was a particular, you know, experience of reporting and ed education. That's how I learned about, you know, international reporting. Uh, from, from the Congo, I then moved to Rwanda, the subject of my recent New York Times article. I, I went to Rwanda to teach a class of about a dozen Rwandan reporters, and they were taken out by the government and by the president, Paul Kagame, uh, one by one. So a, a colleague was shot dead on the same day he criticized the president. I, I showed up at his, at his funeral, and his wife was holding their little infant child. And very few journalists dared even to come to that funeral because they were scared of being associated with him. And you know, Anjan, I hate to say this, but we have 30 seconds, so I want to give you a chance to wrap up. But we're going to continue this conversation after the show and post it at democracynow.org. Your final comments on this. Sure. So, you know, uh, my report in my book, Bad News, Last Journalist in a Dictatorship, that's my second book, is about how President Paul Kagame shut down the press in Rwanda. You know, not only my class, but uh, the, the press in the country. And it describes the, the journey a country goes through. 
uh, as it's being silenced and as dictatorship and authoritarianism takes hold, a process that we're seeing in many countries around the world, not just in Rwanda today. Anjan Sundaram, award-winning journalist and author, latest book, Break Up a Marriage in Wartime. We're going to do part two at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.